This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think that's where I learned some helpful strategies like mindfulness, where you can sit with your feelings and identify the way you feel. And I think that that's actually a very underrated situation. So I would really encourage people to seek that kind of mentoring. It's basically mental health mentoring, right? Like how to deal with these things. When something bad happens, you can let it hit you really hard and not get up, or you can get up and move forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm extremely excited to introduce our guest today, Casey Seideman, pediatric urologist at AHSU, and Jeff Kadedu, professor of urology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. How is it going, Casey and Jeff? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Same here. It's great to see you both. So this is a podcast, maybe among all of them that I've been looking the most forward to. You know, Casey and Jeff are highly respected colleagues and mentors to me. We've been through a lot over the last five years. And today we're going to touch base on complications and really how that affects the surgeons, kind of dissecting the actual complication, the patient-related factors, the institutional-related factors, and even our own personalities. So I, I hope that the listenership gets some value out of this. And maybe I'll just start out with an anecdote. So I was a junior attending Certainly within my first six months of practice, I had a big case. It was an RPLND for uh, recurrent kidney cancer. And the case actually went quite well. And it just seemed that this poor patient had complication after complication. And I remember two weeks out, roughly, it was actually Diwali, which is a Indian festival. And I get a call from one of the residents that, you know, the patient was really crashing. And I drove to the hospital, was ready to kind of do whatever it take. It actually appeared that he had some bleeding from his rectum. Jeff was on call and just like totally re remember like breaking down, crying, you know, residents were there, fellows were there. And I was like, Jeff, he's going to die. He's going to die. And I was, I was freaking out. And that was my first big M. The patient ended up doing okay. Thank God. But it, I mean, it, it haunted me. You know, I, I, I couldn't sleep. It was hard to go home and hey kids, how was your day today? The guilt, I felt embarrassed and it was just you know, it was just, it was traumatic. And I'm not sure that things have actually gotten meaningfully better, but maybe just kind of comment on that, Casey. Have you experienced any of those types of things in, in your career thus far? Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's important that we all talk about complications because complications happen to everyone if they operate enough. And I think that there is a tendency for us to feel shame or maybe even to blame ourselves and to not want to discuss them openly. So I think it's really important that we have these honest, open conversations like these and share stories like the one that you just shared. I think if you do enough cases, you will have complications and they really do affect you as the surgeon. 
they affect the patient, they affect the families of the patient, but it's really the way that we carry those complications with us as surgeons and how we cope with them, how we treat the patients, how we treat the families at the time of the complications, but then also how we treat ourselves. It's really important to discuss. Yeah, that's I think that's true, right? That there were not alone kind of going through this at, and there were not the only person that's ever have a complication. And Jeff, I don't know if you've ever done this exercise, but maybe try to break down your thought process, what happens, kind of the dynamic nature of comprehending a complication. Like, let's just say something bad happens, immediate responses, how are you kind of coping with it? Have you ever spent any time thinking about that? Certainly. I think that with experience, one, I hate to say this, but I've been at the game a little bit longer than you guys. And with experience, I don't want to say that you accept, but you need to realize that we're not infallible. And a complication will occur, can occur, and despite your best efforts, I think it's reasonable and expected that one should have introspection about what's happening in real time and think about how the complication has occurred, why it's occurred, and what you can learn from it right off the bat. But also, I find that if a complication occurs, Again, we're not infallible, but I do think we need to also compartmentalize it in the sense that the most important thing about a complication that does occur is to recognize it, but to know how to address it and have that strategy of what you're going to do. What I've seen people do is freeze or blame, and we don't have to do that. We need to recognize that we can make the mistake, but then be proactive and not ashamed, as Casey said that it has occurred. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and complications are relative. I think if somebody has an intraoperative death, that's traumatic. If somebody has a skin dehiscence after a circumcision, that may be traumatic for a new young family, you know, a bleed after a partial nephrectomy. And, you know, maybe I'll, I'll just kind of throw out some case-related factors, because you mentioned that we are fallible, you know, expected versus unexpected complications, preventable versus less preventable complications, elective versus emergency surgery, intra-op versus post-op. So Casey, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how the actual nature of the case affects your response to a complication? Yeah, sure. I, I think that I want to start out by recognizing that the audience members or the listeners may not recognize that Aditya and I trained together under Jeff Kadidu. And I want to say that it's important that we recognize also that Jeff taught us a lot about how to take good care of patients and also how to recognize when things aren't going right. And I think that he really modeled for us while we were training how to be composed in a state of urgent need and how to recognize when things aren't going perfectly. And so I think I learned a lot from Jeff in terms of what to do when things aren't going going well. And not to say that that happened to him frequently, but mostly I actually do feel like you learn a lot from everyone you train with. You learn what to do, you learn what not to do. And from Jeff, I feel like I learned a lot of what to do when it came to anticipating what the next steps would be. And I always felt like very safe in the operating room with him because I felt like he knew how to get us out of trouble 
if something were to happen. So now when I'm operating, I very much try to model that. So for example, if you're doing a case and you think that there's a high risk of bleeding, I always talk to the residents about the things that you might need to get yourself out of trouble. And that might be relative to the size of the case, but it might be just making sure that you have suction in the room. If you think there's a high risk of blood loss, discussing it with your anesthesiologist, knowing what your ultimate bailout is going to be, knowing what to do when you just see a lot of blood, because you're right, Jeff mentioned there's that initial freeze moment. And I think that you have to really move. You can't allow yourself to kind of be overtaken by that feeling of, oh, crap, something bad is happening. And I really think that seeing people during training and how they go through the motions of what to do when things go wrong is a really formative experience as a trainee. And so it's important as an attending now that I try to model those behaviors for my trainees. So I think it's important to know what you need to get yourself out of trouble in case anything goes wrong to recognize the most common injuries that might happen with the case, you know, to make sure that you discuss them out loud, because just because you think it might not happen to you doesn't mean that there's not a learning opportunity to discuss in terms of what the intraoperative complications could be. And then I think there's always that postoperative worry. I don't know if that's the right way of discussing it, but, you know, when the patient might not be flying out of the hospital, going through the motions of thinking what might be going on. Is this patient have an ileus or is this, you know, a urine leak? Does this patient have an injury that I'm missing? And I think that those are really important exercises to go through and not to deny that these things can happen, because I think oftentimes we get into trouble as physicians when we just say, oh, the patient's fine. They're having a little bit of pain. Ignore it. And so I think that it's important that you go through all of those exercises not just during training, but also as an attending to your trainees to help them recognize all of the possible things that could happen along the way from the time the patient enters the operating room till the time the patient goes home. Yeah, I think that's uh, part and parcel of it. And there are venues for kind of running through this extensively. And, you know, M&M, I think being the most obvious way to kind of flesh this out, you know, maybe we'll, we'll have to kind of take it as a foregone conclusion that your training is adequate. You're taking on cases that are within your skill set. You have some insight on your operative ability, but it goes into, I mean, by definition, we are so involved in and so directly responsible for a surgical complication, say even versus like a medical complication or any other professional error. I would imagine that an airline pilot that has a technical error and a bunch of people die or get hurt has a different response to a banker or a lawyer who kind of drops the ball on something and somebody doesn't get a bunch of money. So by nature, we're, you know, a patient comes in in a certain way, we've done something and they leave in a different way. And the expectation was that it was going to be better and maybe sometimes it's worse. And I think it's, you know, the coping with that that becomes difficult. I mean, for instance, if, if I did a prostatectomy and the next day the guy died of a PE, because I didn't give him anticoagulation, I would have a very hard time with that. If the next day he got hit by a car and died, I would be sad, but I wouldn't feel maybe as directly responsible for that. So if we bring it back to the actual complication, expected versus unexpected, preventable versus less preventable, does this kind of impact the way that it affects you, Jeff? Casey, thank you for those kind, kind words, training you both it's been a pleasure, one of the highest pleasures of my career. 
I think I'm invited to this forum because I'm pretty good at having complications in my career. But to your question, I do, I think what you're trying to parse out is, yeah, there is the expected versus unexpected, the post-operative versus intraoperative. They are different in how we handle it. I want to be careful though, when one says, you know, the expected versus unexpected, because we don't want to be defensive and say that any complication is unexpected. Every complication has occurred before. It may not be with a high frequency enough that one of us, the surgeon may never have heard of it or may never have seen it in training. I mean, it wasn't my job to show you every single complication that's possibly able to happen. So the difference between expected and unexpected is probably just the frequency. Sure, you know, if there are potential, you know, a medical complication, okay, there are patients that you have cardiac clearance, you do a radical prostatectomy, they're cleared by the cardiologist and they still have a, a myocardial infarction. You know, expected, well, they have heart disease, but that's why you got them cleared by the cardiologist. And so I wouldn't say that's unexpected. Maybe it's unavoidable. Maybe I don't think cardiology has M&Ms and I don't think they can prevent and read every potential outcome when they clear a patient, they say low risk, high risk, you know, intermediate risk. But I think my point only is, is that those who are prepared can handle the complication, can react to the complication. As we both said, I think better than if one's unprepared and I don't want a unexpected complication to be an excuse. It just may be so rare and it's unfortunate it happened, but I think I got my point across there. Yeah, Casey, please. I was going to say, I think of it as not just unexpected, but maybe unanticipated. I have a much more difficult time sometimes coping with something when I do a case, if I think that the case goes perfectly. Like I walk out of that OR and think, gosh darn, that was a beautiful pyeloplasty I just did. Patient goes home, does wonderful post-op, and then something happens like a week later, they return to the ER and they end up having a complication. On an emotional level, I have a much harder time because sometimes I really like the idea that I can target what happened and what went wrong so that way I could work on preventing it. I think by nature, surgeons are perfectionists and maybe it's also has to do with being in the first six years of my career, but I really like to try to focus on what I can do to make myself a better surgeon every time. And so when I have a complication, I like to be able to, after I get over the sort of emotional part of it, I like to go into the intellectual part of thinking, what can I do better? Because I want to be the best. And I really have a hard time when I cannot pinpoint what went wrong. Well, I think that's a good point. It, it's not the unexpected, it's the unanticipated. And the reality is none of us have three lifetimes of experience and there are going to be rare complications. I've been in practice 22 years and I just had a complication that I never saw. And I was like, wow, I didn't think of that. And you're, you know, I'll be better for it next time. But if the frequency is once every 22 years, those are just rare complications. And so those are the most disappointing when they're not anticipated and it blows your mind that this could happen. But I think we want to digest that. And then certainly that's where the teaching comes in, right? What happened, what I just did, I need to convey to you so it may not happen again. And I think we've all been through incredibly rare complications. 
but sometimes they don't even show up in the consent form, but they still can occur. And so I think the unanticipated ones are the hardest ones to take. I take those very hard because I was, I, I feel humble that I don't, oh man, I wonder, should I have known that? Like, where did I miss that in my reading and my life and my experience and my training? And then you have to like, okay, well, this is so rare or this is so uncommon. It doesn't get you out of it. You still have to address it with the patient. And I'm sure we'll talk about that, but it goes back to the being in, we're not infallible, but we have to be as prepared as possible and learn and convey our, what we had can learn to others. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think surgeon related factors, competency, self-confidence, actually ability to manage and evaluate a complication, technical skill, those are, are massive. And, you know, maybe the takeaway from this initial part is that complications happen. The magnitude of complications is variable. Our direct impact on, you know, if it's a technical error, I'm guessing that's a lot tougher. You know, if you kind of felt like that UPJ came together pretty well, but you didn't love it and you didn't maybe do all of your worrying in the OR or you throw a stitch or didn't get proximal distal control, whatever. To me, if it's a technical error and there's something that was clearly easy to improve upon, that's very, very hard. But, you know, when a complication happens, this is well described that there's an emotional impact. There's guilt, there's loss of confidence, there's what do other people think, reputation. You worry, of course, for the patient. And we've all met people that have complications and it's like water off a duck's back. And we've all met people that have a complication and they really seem like they've just completely collapsed and shut down. Casey, you know, after a complication, do you run through any of those emotions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that immediately during the unfolding of the complication, I have a very visceral response where I feel really anxious and I feel kind of like sick to my stomach, if that makes any sense. I may not portray it on the outside, but I'm feeling all of the feelings on the inside. And then once I sort of am able to get a hold of that, that probably lasts for just a couple of hours, whether it's happening in the operating room at the time of or unfolding afterwards. Then I think I go through like what I would consider to be the reckoning, where I start to go through the dark thoughts in my mind of why did this happen? Is it me? I do blame myself a little bit. I think that it's really normal, especially early on, to kind of question yourself and to go through the motions of feeling guilt over what happened. But I actually have been trying to employ a mindfulness approach where I allow myself to sit with those feelings. I kind of just sit down, take a deep breath and think like, it's okay that I feel bad. Something bad just happened. And I don't necessarily have to blame myself, but it's okay to recognize these feelings and to sit with them for a little bit. And then I find that once I give myself enough space in feeling that way, then I'm able to sort of shift into the rationalizing portion where I really sit down and think to myself, what could have happened here? What are the factors at play? What are ways of improving this? And while all of that is unfolding, there's the added pressure of what you're doing in your professional life. So are you talking to the family? I think it's really important that you have to recognize that while you're feeling terrible, you have to communicate with families and let them know what's happening and how it's affecting their loved ones. And then sometimes you're even operating on another person while you're going through these things. And that's also really tough and something that I think we don't often talk about. Yeah. Casey is 
Right on. I would take it as far though and say, we're supposed to care. We have to care. And we, we should have empathy for the patient and what they're going to going through because of the event and the family. And it, it shouldn't be, you may be confident in how to handle it, but we should never lose our empathy. I think if you lose empathy for what's happening, if you, you know, it sounds like don't care is, is not the right word, but I mean, I mean the opposite of don't care. I mean, really empathize with the patient. And if we lose that ability to empathize, then I think then you, you have to question why you're in the game. Anymore. So it's normal what an expected emotional response compartmentalizing it can be hard, as Casey said, particularly if you're operating in another patient. We all have a home life that you have to balance as well. And, you know, it's, you don't want to take your job home, but in our line of work, sometimes we do, and sometimes you have to, and it's good to talk about it with colleagues and family and friends, because you have to continue to show empathy. I think the day I don't care anymore per se, or don't feel that or I compartmentalize it too much is a day I probably need to stop what I'm doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's complication specific, it's person specific, and we'll maybe talk some about these surgeon specific factors, but I think it's absolutely a dynamic process. There's an, to me, the acute phase starts maybe on the drive home where it's like, oh my gosh, I'm by myself. I'm starting to kind of sort all of this out. I mean, there's, depending again on the extent of it, some guilt, some loss of confidence. I'm not likely to really offer my opinions at the next M&M that happens two days after I have a big complication. Like that's not something I'm going to feel like, here, let me, you know, offer my two cents in the operating room. I might not be as vocal with the residents on do this and don't do that because I'm just like, oh my gosh, like what just happened? And I don't know what the normal or typical or acceptable time frame is. But I think depending on the complication, it can be protracted and it's, it doesn't just end at, you know, I left the hospital today and nothing happened. You know, I think to me, many times this is like an actual trauma. It's a trauma, of course, for the patient, for their family and, you know, to be involved with that. And then an hour and a half later, sit down to dinner is kind of a crazy thing, actually. Any comments on that? I think you're right. And I think the moment that, that's what I was trying to say, the moment you compartmentalize it to the point where it doesn't stick with you is a point of introspection for you in terms of your commitment. We have the privilege of the jobs we do. We have the privilege of taking care of these patients and the privilege of being in this profession. But the responsibilities of learning from mistakes or complications, the responsibility of a commitment to these patients who basically entrusting you and are afraid. So taking it home or having it linger is okay. Certainly there's experience that goes with that too. You know, I do a lot of partial nephrectomies every year in, year out. I know I'm going to have patients bleed. And 20 years ago, I did take it a lot harder than I take them now, only because I was less experienced in how to react or correct or fix or manage than I am now. So I think that it doesn't mean I don't care as much, but I'm much more confident that I know I can handle this complication. I know it's going to happen, but I know I can handle it. So it, there is some experience, but it should never be to the experience where you, you don't want to be nonchalant about it. 
I think we do take these things home and I don't think that you can completely compartmentalize it. I think that family members of surgeons go through these things as well because they have to recognize that we really care for our patients and sometimes we're going to be worried about our patients and those things do creep into our lives outside of the hospital. And so I think that it's important that we have supportive family members who are understanding of what it's like being, you know, with someone who, even though you might not be on call or at work, might be going through something. And then the other part of that is I think it's important that we have other people we can talk to about these things because sometimes they do linger and maybe your spouse isn't in medicine and doesn't understand and maybe you don't feel like you can talk to your partner, but you should have someone that you can talk to because I think that's part of the trauma and getting over it. Yeah. So, Jeff, I just wanted to respond. So it's pretty, I think, well established in the literature that junior faculty are affected more severely by complications. And unfortunately, I think I'm rapidly getting out of junior faculty mode, which I suppose happens. So for, actually for my first big M, which I think I shared just a bit about, when I talked to people, starting with the chairman, Klaus Rorburn, who I would say is an amazing guy, it wasn't a technical, did you do this or why didn't you do this? It was, let me tell you a story about 30 years ago when I started practice and here's what happened. It kind of, I think, brings out a human aspect to our mentors and administrators. It validates that, you know, going through this kind of, kind of whole set of emotions is normal. And, you know, I think in terms of like things that we can do, you know, Casey talk, mentioned talking to people, what I've actually started is if there's an M&M or I hear about a complication, especially among like a junior faculty, I'll reach out and just how are you doing? You know, I felt bad. That sounds terrible. Like I can't imagine. And I feel like it's been positively re received. Any things that, you know, happened or didn't happen, you know, kind of along the along your professional journey that's helped or that you wish it had happened? Well, I would say that I feel fortunate that my current boss, Chris Austin, is that person for me. So when things don't go well or I have concerns, I go to him and I think it's important he's, he listens, you know, just listening is really important and he validates the feelings and he has had similar experiences. And yeah, you don't have to dissect it and talk about the technical details. I also don't feel like M&M in its morphed form of what it is these days is really a therapeutic event. I think it's going through the motions. I think it's like, oh, well, let's report all of our Clavian fours, you know. Sometimes you can talk about things that are common so that the residents learn and what you can do differently. But oftentimes it feels like regurgitated information that we talk about over and over again. So I do think about that having these conversations with each other, with our trainees, being really open, honest and vulnerable is important. I think the vulnerability is is something that I definitely got from Jeff during training, but definitely didn't get from other people during training. And I really valued that. So I, I wish there would be more vulnerability when it came to how people cope and deal with things when they happen, because I think that it's also important to recognize that we're training the next generation of surgeons and they need that from us. Yeah. So the only thing I agree again, completely, 
we're all in the academic medicine, and I'm sure there could be a, some listeners on this podcast who are in a non-academic private setting, a group setting. I don't know how many urologists nowadays are in solo practice anymore, but no matter the environment, I encourage in the non-academic environment to, I hope there's opportunities for people to talk and speak with colleagues in their group or in their hospital. Because we don't want to just bear this alone. And M&M is not the environment and non-academic practices probably don't have M&Ms. So I think uh, those who work in a, in a group that uh, I hope part of choosing to work for a group is someone, a group that's supportive, just like you hope that it is an academic department. But one should not bear this alone. And all of us should take it upon ourselves to, like you said at the TIA, reach out to others in your group to let them know that it happens to all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for bringing that up, Jeff. And, you know, sometimes in academics, you know, it's all kind of public knowledge. It's all kind of, you know, fairly high degrees of visibility and accountability with the structure of academics for, for better or for worse. And, you know, are these things that cross your mind? You know, wh what do my colleagues think? How am I being perceived within my institution? I suppose one could become like a frequent flyer on M&M. And sometimes I feel like the oncologists are heavily represented. Are these things that you ever think about? Again, I think we probably all do. Surgeons are also type A personalities in general. Probably most surgeons are competitive in general. So worrying about what others think is probably a normal human reaction that uh, I'm not a therapist at all, but I think a therapist would probably tell you not to care what other people think and the people who care about what, how you're doing and how you're responding to it are the people you should be talking to and not the others. But it's not so much that I personally would take it of what do others think? But if I can get a feeling that, you know, again, I do a lot of partial nephrectomies and all of a sudden, if a whole lot of my patients are bleeding, uh, yeah, I, I am, it does cross my mind. I wonder what everybody else is going to think about it. But uh, really what should cross your mind is, why is this happening? Let me go back, think it through, look at the videotape or whatever it is to improve so this doesn't happen again. And if you can improve, then those feelings of, competition and, and what other people think are going to go away anyway. You have to, by improving yourself, you're going to fix those feelings and fix those problems. Totally. And Casey, you mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes you may have to do another operation while you're kind of in the midst of a complication. And maybe that's not like day of, minute of, you know, maybe it's a couple of days out, et cetera. Have you ever, you know, noticed any issues or problems of loss of concentration you know, maybe not being able to sleep after like a complication or even changes to your practice, you know, becoming a risk averse for certain types of cases, you know, hot off the heels of a complication? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that, first of all, I think the hardest thing for me in practice is to put on a happy face, walk into a patient's room, smile and consent someone while something on the other side is happening if that makes sense. But it's my job to also be reassuring to the family that I'm about to take care of. I don't feel like it affects my 
technical performance, but I think that it puts me in a very different mental headspace. Like I'm not happy and singing in the OR, you know, and I might be a lot more risk averse. I might at that time feel like I need to do this case myself and I need to just take it slow and do it exactly how I want to do it to make myself feel better. And sometimes I feel guilty, like my job is to teach the residents and here I am doing this whole case myself, but it's really part of my healing process sometimes just to give myself that space to do that operation in the best way possible in a very serious manner. I sometimes don't sleep well after complications, especially if something I think really serious is still unfolding or if I'm really worried about a patient. And that can definitely affect me. I think a lot of us go through that, especially early on, that worry, that anxiety when you have a patient in the ER or a patient who you're waiting on a CT scan for, that can really affect you. Do you feel like you can do the best, your best period? And, you know, there's this phenomenon that I, you may or not, may not be familiar with called second victim syndrome, where after, of course, the patient and their family, the surgeon is this second victim dealing with the emotional fallout, the family fallout, the guilt, the anger, the sadness, the impact on their personal life. And there's actually data that you're more likely to have a complication hot off the heels of having had a complication. So I think myself as well, I'd like to think that if I'd had a complication, I can still get in there, get my mind right and do what I need to do. But that might actually not be the case. And I've actually heard of some institutions, I don't think I've heard about it in urology, which essentially mandate a day off after a big complication. And, you know, that may be absolute 21st century thinking, but, um, you know, perhaps there's some merit to it. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, no, I think, well, first of all, what we're saying is it's not easy to compartmentalize. And though it's expected of us, right, because the day doesn't stop and we have to do our best to compartmentalize. And I think the way Casey described handling that is natural. And, you know, those of us in academics, our residents should be empathetic to that as well. And though I feel bad, a good resident would understand and empathize because they know they're going to be in those same shoes one day. You know, do you get back on the saddle right away or take a day off after that? I think everybody reacts differently. So I don't know if I would want to legislate something like that. On the other hand, we do have an obligation and it's so hard, but we do have an obligation that if we're not in the right frame or state to mentally, to, you know, even share that with the patient, you know, the, unfortunately there's financial pressures uh, against that, but. There is. I, I, one time in my career, I shared with a patient that I think we needed to, to not do this. Actually twice. One was from a complication. Another one from, well, it was from being up all night and not being in a, you know, being so fatigued. I didn't think that we could go ahead and do the case safely. And, you know, it's a tough decision, but hopefully we should have enough introspection to know how best to get onto it. But sometimes we don't because of the pressure. So I could see why they would legislate a day off, but at least a conversation with you and your partners and, and what have you about what to do and how to go about it would be reasonable. I would imagine that most of us wouldn't feel comfortable asking for a day off because of the, the environment that we work in. We're surgeons, we're tough, we keep going. So I do think that there is something to the idea of 
sort of mandating that you take the next day off. I don't know how that would work in practice, given the way that our schedules are. The fact that we're not interchangeable with our colleagues and the fact that OR time these days is hard to come by. But I think if it were left to us, we would probably, maybe for better or for worse, just keep trotting up forward. And maybe there is something to the idea of giving us a little bit of space to recover from at least the acute issue. Totally. And, you know, it's amazing, as again, I've I've kind of mentioned, there's pretty good literature on this. And, you know, there's kind of coping mechanisms, problem focused, talking to colleagues, deconstructing complications to learn from it. You know, we've kind of talked fairly extensively about that. Ensuring that surgical skills and management of complications is good and, you know, communication. We could have a whole talk about, you know, the patients know if this is authentic empathy and competency. I feel like, you know, you hear these stories about patients having complications and their attendings never show up. I mean, it just blows my mind that, that people could kind of do that. Then there's emotion-focused coping. And I think we've talked about this, you know, rationalizing seeking reassurance. I think this is something that, you know, in reflecting, I've, I've certainly done that. Called somebody that I trust, that I like. Oh my gosh, this happened. Hey man, you know, you're a great surgeon. You did everything you could. These things happen. I think this is something that we we probably do. Then this kind of dynamic process of rationalizing, internalizing, compartmentalizing, acceptance. Yeah, there can be blame if X, Y, and Z didn't do this, or if the resident didn't notify me, or if anesthesia didn't give them six liters. You know, I think there can be some aspects of that that take place. And that's probably this, you know, I mean, sometimes it may be totally warranted and sometimes it could just be human nature to try to blame the patient or blame somebody else for what happened. Have you ever experienced those emotions or acted out or anything along those lines? I'd certainly... Again, I think it's human nature. I certainly have felt that like, oh, this happened because the resident didn't do it. Or this happened because, yeah, it's because the patient, patient has an incisional hernia because he coughs too much, right? No, they didn't. It's not because they coughed or you have even patients come in and say incisional hernia. Oh, I'm sure it's my fault, doc, because two weeks after surgery, I had to lift something or I, I exercise, I walked up the stairs too fast. And no, it's not that. It's, you know, you closed it. And if you let the, if in academics, you let the resident close it, well, you know what? It's still our responsibility because it's the trust that you had in the resident. The resident may not have been supervised appropriately. So every time we all do that, you know, we all want to defer because we have this expectation of infallibility, even of ourselves. But I think that's an emotion that needs to be suppressed. We don't want to blame others either. Uh, That's not a healthy thing because that is a failure to recognize that we are, this can happen. We can make mistakes and we can, we have to be able to address them in a constructive manner. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's counterproductive and I actually have found even even more so maybe it's it's an institutional thing that trying to engage other teams, anesthesia, general surgery, whoever, into kind of multidisciplinary M&Ms can be quite a valuable experience. So what are the things that have kind of worked for you all? You know, what are the things that you've found to be helpful? What's your kind of go-to when you're handling a, a complication? Let me ask you this. Have you ever called your institutional employee assistant program hotline to talk about how you're feeling after a complication? 
That's a really good question. So I have spoken to, I guess I we, w- we would call it like our mental health services. And I have a couple of times spoken to a professional. And I actually think that it is very undervalued and potentially stigmatized. And I almost feel like it should be mandatory. I have a friend who completed an OBGYN residency and then went on to do gynonc training and they actually mandated that they meet on a monthly basis with a mental health professional to discuss things like adverse outcomes and how to cope with it and i'm like wow i i wish i had that that was mandated for me instead i have to take it upon myself and so i think that's where i learned some helpful strategies like mindfulness where you can sit with your feelings and identify the way you feel and i think that that's actually a very underrated situation. So I would really encourage people to to seek that kind of mentoring. It's basically mental health mentoring, right? Like how to deal with these things. When something bad happens, you can you can let it hit you really hard and not get up or you can get up and move forward and it's about how you do that. Like we're athletes in some ways, right? Imagine that you totally eat it on the court and you're, you know, you have to play again the next day. You have to figure out ways with your mental strategy on how to be your best self again the next day. So I think that we need to take better care of ourselves mentally in order to be our best. Yeah, as you were talking, Casey, I literally was going to comment on how, you know, Olympic athletes basically it's mandated that they have mental health coaches and coaches. And we, we could talk about that to some extent. And, you know, I applaud you for taking advantage of those services, you know, at the institutional level, I sometimes feel like something happens, COVID, blah, 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 whatever. We get an email saying that wellness is important. Here's an 800 number to call. And I'm like, okay, is that something that people are actually doing? But I I, I wholeheartedly, I think, agree. And, you know, kind of just talking about it, that this affects us, that this, that we're people and that we're not all like robots or ultra machismo, like mega competitors where nothing bad happens and we're, you know, blinded to that. What about you, Jeff? What's worked for you? Uh, I, I have not taken liberty of using any of that, such a service, but what's really worked for me is I've been lucky to work with partners that are very supportive, very experienced, and are good listeners. So I, I found that the most uh, useful resource, but we talked about this already. We, we want to be in an environment where there is support and where there's understanding. And uh, so I think maybe I'm lucky, but I think having partners that like that have been my resource. And you mentioned, you know, Klaus, uh, I work very closely with Peggy Pearl for 22 years. So I feel like I can call both of them actually in that same, for that same role. And I've had people, you know, call me to discuss it and uh, did to you. And I talked about that in the beginning of, you know, your career, we've done that. We had a couple things where we, we talked and listened and, and shared that we're only human. So some resource needs to be available. We cannot take this and internalize this on our own. That's for sure. Yeah. And you know, when, when you actually look at survey of surgeons, it's available support, peers, senior surgeon, loved ones. You know, I personally feel like I'm burdening my wife, who's actually a physician, if I'm like, hey, this happened and I feel like crap and I try to, you know, there's enough kind of 
quietness and withdrawing that I don't want to, for better, for worse, talk about it. One thing I did recently was it was, it was a pretty unusual complication and uh, I could tell the residents were quite upset. And just that day, I took four of them out to get like some appetizers and we just sat and talked about it, you know? And uh, I think most people would generally describe me as pretty upbeat and somewhat confident. And I, I think that they saw like a different side of me that day. And we, you know, we had some, we, you know, we just kind of hung out and I, I feel like it was useful for them and importantly useful for me to maybe just hash out some of the emotions. Cause I've, I've not, I mean, other than colleagues haven't really branched out into any other, any other type of support. And, you know, I was thinking about this episode, you know, we had kind of a rough family situation in my a couple of years ago and we participated in a support group and it was amazing. You know, you've kind of got, you're kind of talking about these terrible things that have happened to you with people that can empathize and that have kind of lived through it. And, you know, boy, would I love to uh, sit down with five or six people that I like, that I know that I care about and like have a couple of beers and talk about, you know, what's life like, you know, hot off the heels of a major complication. So I think, I think there's some barriers, you know, we've been fortunate to work in positive cultures. I mean, I've never gotten the business at m and like, what are you thinking? You shouldn't be doing these cases or anything along those lines. But I think there's, you know, certainly opportunities to improve, you know, some of the things we've touched upon, um, formal mentoring, time after serious complications, cooperating, you know, maybe something kind of horrific happens and you say, you know what? let's do this case together, or maybe for a junior faculty, more junior faculty after a complication, like, hey, I'm happy to assist. And I mean, even well into my career, I would have zero pride in saying, hey, you know, typically it was Vitaly, you mind being around, or Jeff, I've called you into my OR multiple times, you know, just, you might take a look, blah, blah, blah. So I think there are some, some real opportunities here. How about from your all's perspective, any, any opportunities or things that you wish had existed you know, maybe early on, especially in your career? I feel like what you just described is that we all wear armor. You know, we wear armor to work. I think we have to, to a certain degree, right? But you have to take it off and be vulnerable sometimes. And I think that recognizing when that time is and how to do it well is really important. I want to say that I maybe wish that there were some not mandatory, but easier ways for people to get counseling and to destigmatize it. If that were to be a part of routine training, maybe that would be a way of doing it. I do think when my friend described what she had in her training, that it did sound like there was merit to that. I don't think that many surgeons left to their own devices seek that out on their own without prompting. So I would like to see that if there could be some kind of change in a positive direction. But I think the most important thing for me from being a trainee to being an early career urologist now to being maybe a mid-career urologist is seeing other people when they're vulnerable and appreciating that they go through similar things that we go through, that we're a community, that we go through these things and we're not alone, that we have friends that we can call. You know, I talked to you. I talked to Jim, who was one of our other co-residents. I think that having people that you can talk to is important. I think making it not shameful to discuss these things out loud is important because we all go through it. And then not letting it 
not letting it devour you or make you stop doing what you're doing. Like you can't let it get the best of you. You have to, after you're over it in some degree sense of the word, you need to be able to pick yourself up and become a better surgeon because of it. Absolutely. What about you, Jeff? Casey's synopsis there was, was well put. And I don't know if I have anything more to say about that. But it'd just be repetitive. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I somewhere generally kind of in the first quarter with chiefs and fellows that comes up. And I always talk about the person in the mirror test. In our profession, bad things are going to happen. And as long as you can kind of go home at the end of the day, did I try my best? Did I cut any corners? Did I stay till the job's done? As long as you can kind of answer affirmatively, I think it allows you to get back on the horse, you know, to extract the, you know, the personal guilt to some extent, you know, I don't think it absolves it or makes it go away. I think like you mentioned, Jeff, if, if bad stuff happens, it affects us. And if it doesn't, that's, that's a bit of a problem, but you know, I think these are, these are worthwhile questions to ask. And if you're having problems with that, I would imagine that the weight of these complications becomes heavier. Aditya, can I ask you a question? Please. I'm flipping the script on you. What would you change in modern training in terms of complications and how we cope with them? Yeah, I, I think just something proactive. I mean, you'd like to think that everybody's got a friend within their department that would reach out to them. Are you okay? How are you doing? But maybe something a little bit more formal, you know, whether we're assigned pairs, I don't know if mentor, mentee, senior partner, junior partner, something a little bit more formal that after a complication, there has to be some time to kind of discuss it, um, not just in terms of opportunities for improvement, changes in management, blah, blah, blah. I think that's there, but, you know, just some, some gauge on impact on mental health, well-being, things along those lines, because I can certainly imagine that there are people that find themselves in a deep, dark space, feeling alone, not feeling supported. And that has to be, you know, scary and quite miserable. Well, this is always just so educational. It's useful. You know, I think just to kind of, you know, I see you guys as ultra competent uh, role models always have in my whole career and just be like, you know, behind all of that is like a person that's dealing with these things that are hard. And I certainly don't think any of us has the solution, but I do firmly believe that starting the conversation is and, and being okay with it is, is a good starting point. So I, I thank you for coming on and for your insight into this important topic and, you know, look forward to seeing you guys soon. Thank you, Ditya. Great to see you, Casey. Thank you. I miss you both. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. 
social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.